This is an Area Code podcast. This is Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. Here's the one Elsie McWilliams story that sets the stage for what you're about to hear. Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman, the father of country music, along with the Carter family, the template for country music to come, one of the few unimpeachable legends of the genre, accolades can go on and on. Jimmy Rogers is sitting down to a celebratory turkey dinner. What are they celebrating? They're celebrating his recent success as a recording artist for OK Records. It is the night before he is to travel to Camden, New Jersey to record eight new songs. Who wrote the songs? Mostly Elsie McWilliams, his sister-in-law. Why did she write them? Jimmy asked her to. Who cooked the celebratory dinner? Elsie McWilliams. Jimmy Rogers, ready to conquer the world, holds the guitar aloft in his hand, wraps his right arm around the waist of his wife Carrie, and says to her, Darlin', if I could just keep you and my old guitar, I'm gonna hit the stars. You just watch me. I'm climbing, and I'm gonna hit the stars if I can keep you and my old guitar. Elsie McWilliams goes immediately to the piano and works steadily until she writes a ninth song for Jimmy's session. I'll hook my ladder to a silver star and climb with you and my old guitar. Why did she do this? Not because Jimmy asked her to. Not because she was desperate for royalty checks. Not because she wanted to make a name for herself. She did it to help her family. She did it out of generosity. I get the feeling that even if Jimmy weren't her brother-in-law and she saw a musician in need of a song, she would have written them one. Extraordinary talent. Extraordinary generosity. This story happens in 1928, and this is where most Jimmy Rogers biographers and country music history books introduce Elsie McWilliams. But let's go back to the beginning. Nettie Elsie Williams was born on June 1, 1896, in Harperville, Mississippi. She says, I was born, I think, interested in music. Mother said before I could hardly sit up, I had a little old high chair there. I mean, a little stool that I had in front of my baby chair. She said I'd just sit there and beat on that chair and sing to the top of my voice before you could tell what I was singing. Later on, my father was a minister, and I went to church all the time, you know. I played. We used to have pump organs in all of the churches, the country churches where I went to. And long before I could touch the pedals to pump, someone would stand by to do the pumping, and I'd play for the revivals and things, you know, by ear. She wasn't really interested in learning to read music, but she entered a music contest that required her to learn, so she did. But throughout her life, she approached music more improvisationally. She didn't really grow up in a household that listened to old-time string band music, the kind that would be associated with country music. She went to the occasional square dance and liked fiddling, but she was more omnivorous in her music appreciation. At the age of 13, she moves to Meridian, Mississippi, where she begins to attend high school. This is in 1909. 
but she has to postpone her high school experience because of sickness and what she calls adverse circumstances. She finally graduates at the age of 21, and she marries the same year. Before marrying, she had planned to practice law with her older brother, Nate. She and Nate were pals, hunting and fishing together growing up, doing farm work together. Elsie's marriage derails the plans for law school, and she gave up on the idea of having a profession, though she still helped Nate out, doing stenographer work for him. Her husband went overseas to fight in World War I, and she went to D.C. to work for the Treasury Department. She says, Of course when I was in Washington, D.C., everybody played the uke, and so every lunch we'd go out to the park and eat our lunches, where we would play our ukes and sing and have a good time that way. She worked there for a year and a half, until her husband came back. Their first of three children was born May 25, 1920. 1920 is also when her sister Carrie meets Jimmy Rogers, who's working for the railroads. Before Elsie has a chance to meet Jimmy, Jimmy and Carrie are married. Jimmy and Elsie, now family, connect over music, and Elsie even joins a band Jimmy is putting together with a fiddler named Slim Roselle. With Jimmy on banjo and guitar and Elsie on piano, the trio played modern Tin Pan Alley popular tunes for dances around Meridian. The group often played an outdoor pavilion called Lauderdale Springs, and their growing success gave Jimmy hope. He talked about hiring more band members and moved Elsie's grand piano onto the pavilion stage, I guess because he had some idea of their permanence as a band. However, the winter came, the crowds dwindled, and Jimmy turned his attention elsewhere. They never retrieved Elsie's piano. Forgive me, country music heads, for skipping over much of Jimmy Rogers' story here. His story has been told again and again. His place in country music history is set. I'm going to use this time to talk about Elsie McWilliams' story, which interacts with Jimmy Rogers' career in significant ways. Jimmy's career starts to take off. His first recordings with Ralph Peer and OK in Bristol, Tennessee, the big bang of country music where he and the Carter family record their first sides days apart, sell well, and make Ralph Peer want more. He for Texas if you remember from the Sarah Carter and Maybell Carter episodes, Peer cares about artists recording songs that they can copyright whether they are originals or uncopyrighted traditional songs. Jimmy's first record set him apart as someone who can bridge blues and hillbilly. He is the blue yodeler, after all. And someone who can exploit a troubadour songwriter image. Jimmy needs original songs. Jimmy also has tuberculosis. Jimmy is scheduled to record again for Pierre in Camden, New Jersey in 1928. Except he doesn't have any new songs. He calls his sister-in-law Elsie for help. Here's how she remembers this time. Our church was kind of a poor church, and we didn't always have the right kind of literature for different occasions. And Jimmy knew that I wrote plays for the children and songs and readings and speeches for them to say at Children's Day and different things, you know. He said, I know you can write what I want you to write. He said, I have a chance to record, and says, I've got to have some music. He says, I'm sick and I'm trying to make a living as best I can. 
He says, I've got to have some ballads and all. And said, you just write me some. Got to have them. So Elsie wrote a few, and she sent them to Washington, where Jimmy was. Of the batch of songs that Elsie sent, they only used one for recording. Sailor's Plea. They tell me, darling, that tonight you'll wed another man. But if you do, I'll tell you too, my boat will never land. Jimmy calls Elsie from Washington, saying, I can't do it without you being here to interpret. I can't read music myself. The folks that read it don't put your interpretation to it some way or another. You'll just have to come up here and teach them to me. I've got to have four songs to go to New York at an early date and to record. Elsie had no ambition to be a songwriter, but she wrote a new batch of songs that include some of Jimmy's most recognizable hits. My Little Lady. Would give me a kiss While sweetly to her I would sing Oh, hey, day, my little lady Swan, love no one but you Oh, hey, day, my little lady Yodel. To rock you to sleep in my arms, dear, and sing lullabies to you. Holy, 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 and Mississippi Moon. Let us throw once again. Down the dear old lover's lane Where nature seems to softly cruise Our hearts will be so light While we wander there tonight Underneath the Mississippi moon Elsie went to Washington, leaving her children with her mother. Jimmy was pleased with the songs. They went to New York to record them, but Ralph Peer's mother was ill in Chicago, so they waited in New York at Peer's expense until he could come back. He couldn't make it back at a reasonable time, so he told them to return to Washington and get four more songs ready to record at a later date. Elsie used her conversations with Jimmy while in New York as inspiration for this next batch of songs. He talked a lot about his dad and home, and Elsie writes Daddy and Home. I am dreaming tonight of an old southern town And the best friend that I ever had For I've grown so weary of roaming around I'm going back home to my dad talked about New Orleans and home, and she wrote, My Little Old Home Down in New Orleans. Listen while I tell you about the place I need 
She also writes My Old Pal and Never No Mo Blues. These make up the eight that Pierre wants. This is when the turkey dinner happens that Elsie doesn't eat because she's busy writing You and My Old Guitar. During the Camden recordings, Elsie's daughter became ill and nearly died. She returned home and was reluctant to leave her again. For having such an autobiographical songwriter image, Jimmy didn't write the vast amount of his own material. Apparently, the way that Jimmy wrote with Elsie, reminiscing, building from an interesting concept or a word or phrase, is the way that many of his songs were created. In contrast to the royalty-hungry business model of Ralph Peer, Elsie was reluctant to put her name on any of her songs. She wanted Jimmy to get the money for them. She says, Jimmy didn't have to worry about putting my name on anything. I was just trying to help him make a living for my sister and the baby, you know. I knew his condition, and I didn't care anything about the money, and I didn't care anything about the fame. I just wanted to help him. She goes on to say, he made me sign that first little contract, and I said, Jimmy, I don't want to sign. I don't want any money for it. He said, what if I want you to have it? Well, if it makes anything, I'll have some, and you can have some too, you know. Of course, the contract wasn't worth but a fourth of a cent. I'll sign it. I'll tell you my first check. If it's 50 cents or $50, I'm going to give it to the church. When the first check came, it was 256.56. I decided to give it to the church. He fussed because I didn't buy me another piano, you know, instead of giving it away because I gave it all away. There's always somebody that needs it worse than I do, you know. And besides, I love that old piano. In a book written in 1933 by Carrie Rogers, Elsie's sister and Jimmy's wife, Carrie claims that Elsie's donating the royalties to the church was a deal that Elsie made with God for sparing the life of her daughter during her illness. The reluctance of Elsie to take credit for the music she wrote makes it difficult to figure out exactly what Elsie McWilliams wrote and what she didn't. Many sources say she wrote or significantly contributed to 39 of Jimmy's songs. Through all of my digging, I could only piece together a list of 36. Of those 36, I'm only certain of Elsie's hand in 26. If anyone out there listening has a confirmed list of all 39 Elsie McWilliams songs, I'd love to see it. She never wanted to write these songs, she claims. She only did it because Jimmy made her. She told him, you're the inspiration of all of it, so it's not telling a story to say that you're the composer. If you hadn't made me do it, I wouldn't have. One could make the case that Elsie's contributions are greater than she would admit. She contributed to a number of Jimmy's more bawdy and lurid songs, his blue yodel numbers and the like but she did not want her name associated with the subject matter for reasons of propriety. She says, all those blue yodels Jimmy wrote completely, except sometimes he needed somebody to kind of, you know, line it up a little different or something. I told him I didn't even want my name on there, but I didn't really help too much on any of them anyway. Also saying, I've always been mighty straight-laced. Sometimes he'd say something in there that I didn't think I wanted my name to. There are, however, a couple of risque songs that Elsie claims. One is Everybody Does It in Hawaii. He's got two pretty legs with dimpled knees, two brown arms, and they know how to squeeze. A perfect home, and I'm hard to please, but everybody does it in Hawaii. 
song came out of a hotel conversation about Hawaii with Hawaiian guitarist Joe Kaipo, whose father was the mayor of Honolulu. In the conversation, Jimmy comments he'd like to have one of those hula hula girls. They talked about how everybody does hula in Hawaii. Elsie turned the phrase over in her head that night, and she wrote the song, which was recorded in the next day or two. It would be a crossover hit, being covered by King Oliver and his Creole jazz band. instance, Joe Kaipo had spent two years working on a melody, but couldn't find words to fit. Ralph Pierce said to call Elsie in. She could give them words. Elsie listened to the song once, took shorthand notes, and had the lyrics in one draft with no changes. The song was Tuck Away My Lonesome Blues. Tuck away my blues, lonesome blues, won't you be that someone to help me Jimmy asked Elsie to write a very personal song, TB Blues, which tells the story of his sickness. Elsie refused. She said it was something he needed to do himself. She would later say that Jimmy wasn't sissy about it. It turns out Jimmy got a man named Ray Hall, who was a prisoner in the Texas State Penitentiary, to help him out instead. In the book Meeting Jimmy Rogers, Barry Mazur says that Elsie had a hand in Mule Skinner Blues which Jimmy recorded under the title Blue Yodel Number no. 8. If this is true, Elsie's fingerprints are on one of the most enduring songs in country music. That song is referenced in Episode 2 on Lottie Kimbrough, if you want to find out a little bit more. Elsie only signed royalty contracts for the first six songs she recorded, leaving others to get the money for the other 33. She was paid by Jimmy for the songs, and she was given a valuable guitar by the Gibson Company. For some songs, she considered the traveling that she was able to do on tour as compensation enough, though I can't imagine it was all fun for a straight-laced Elsie, especially when Jimmy and his rowdy friends took her to a burlesque show in New Orleans. As Jimmy became more famous, he had other songwriters to help him write his songs, and Elsie began to direct her attention back to her home life. After 1929, only one song she wrote for Jimmy was recorded, and it's a special one, because it's the only gospel number that Jimmy sang, and it's his only duet. In that wonderful place, when I reach my home in that city, shall I find you waiting up there, with the saints who have gone on before us, to that beautiful home so Live in the light of his glory throughout. 
That's Sarah Carter of the Carter family singing with Jimmy on Elsie's song. Ralph Peer arranged a recording session with his two biggest acts in 1931, resulting in some lackluster comedy. Hey, girl, stop that noise. Yonder comes a strange car up our road. Law, it may be the revenue officer. It has a Texas license. Why, that's Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers. Rogers. Hey, hey, howdy, folks. The old lady. <laughs> so this is Virginia, huh? Yes, sir. Mighty glad to see you, Jimmy. Get out and come right in. You're the first cowboy we've seen in a long time. <laughs> that so? Boy, it's a long ways from here to Texas. Man, man, I didn't know it was such a drive from Texas to Virginia. Well, I'm here anyhow. Gee, I've been wanting to see you folks for a long time. How about a little drink, Jimmy? <laughs> Boy, that sounds good to me, the old lady. Man, man. Son, go get the old boy a little squirt, will you? Girls, you all play him a little tune. Make him feel like he's at home while he's at Macy Springs. Also resulting in some fine music. Jimmy Rogers succumbs to tuberculosis two days after recording his final session in 1933. This does not end Elsie's work on behalf of her sister Carrie. You may know about Ernest Tubb. <laughs> I'm walking the floor over you I can't sleep a wink, that is true I'm hoping and I'm praying as my heart breaks right into Walking the floor over you Ernest Tubb idolizes Jimmy Rogers and is just beginning his career. He connects with Carrie Rogers after Jimmy's death, promising to help promote Jimmy's music any way he can. Carrie connects him with Elsie, who writes several songs for him, two of which are songs in tribute to Jimmy. The Passing of Jimmy Rogers. He gave up the life in the prime of his life Said goodbye at just 35 years His world mourns his untimely passing Leaving much of his work still undone. And the last thoughts of Jimmy Rogers. Oh, I'm far from Anita and Carrie. Just awaiting the time when I can return to the scenes of my fireside. Back to my blue bonnet land. LC even travels to San Antonio to help Tubb get ready for his first recording session. Tubb also recorded End of the Rainbow Trail, which Elsie wrote for her sister Carrie, and Since the Black Cat Crossed My Path, taken from a time when a cat ran in front of Elsie's car and she almost turned around because of the superstition. Now I don't believe in superstition. Such a rot burns me up with the wrath But the show been a change in my condition Since that black cat crossed my path She also wrote some religious songs for Tubb, but he didn't take any of them. Elsie wrote some Jimmy Rogers tribute numbers for Carrie as well, which, despite her lack of professional experience, Carrie records. His old guitar is silent. Longing, longing, so 
Kelsey says, A few other artists have recorded some of my numbers since Jimmy's passing, but no one has ever seemed to understand the spirit behind the songs and make them reach the hearts of people like he did. She says that she has hundreds of songs. Some have been recorded, but most have not. Of the ones that have been recorded, the artists who recorded them never made it big, so the songs were forgotten. The royalties have not been good, but even if she had received her fair share, there's a good chance that she would have used the money to help others more than herself. She says, I'm good at giving away every cent I get. If anybody comes to me with a hard luck story, they get all I've got and all I can borrow for them. I said, it seems like that I stay broke all the time, and I'm definitely broke now because I borrowed from my son till I got his business in a jam. She also had hospital bills for her daughter and husband, a diabetic who lost his leg. The nurses told her that she wouldn't be able to take care of him by herself, but Elsie said, Well, this old lady has done a lot of things that folks didn't think they could do. I'm strong and I can do a lot of things. Among the things that Elsie has done since Jimmy's death were teaching shorthand and bookkeeping at a Mississippi business college in the 1930s, she says, I was kind of running the college, but at first I was just teaching the bookkeeping for a while, but I ran the college. It was my sister's college, and after she went to Washington, why, I run the college until her people that had contracts, you know, graduated and finished, and then we sold the college. She worked as a department store salesperson until her son returned home from World War II. He opened a shop, and she put a grocery business in his shop, and she did the bookkeeping and telephoning and cooking and cleaning for him. He came back from the war nervous and couldn't answer the telephone. In her later years, she served as state musician for the Rebecca Lodge, the Women's Circle, the American Legion, and VFW. She was also the pianist for the Eastern Star. Most of the songs she played for these were marches and traditional patriotic songs. Her home, whether intentionally or not, became a kind of museum to Jimmy Rogers. When people would give her something, she would hang on to it and display it. She says statues and vases and all these things that you see all over the place, these whatnots and all, I've never bought one in my life, but I've got gobs of them, and that I appreciate every one, even though it doesn't mean anything to other people. But when I look at them, I think of the fans that brought me this, and where they've been, and what they did, and it means a great deal to me, all these lovely gifts from the Jimmy Rogers fans. She says she counts the Jimmy Rogers fans among her best friends. She says, there's not many days that pass, but that the Jimmy Rogers fans don't come by and say hello to me. And I usually take time off to run to the grave or the monument with them, if they don't know their way around at all. I'll drop what I'm doing and go with them, and of course they appreciate that. She maintained to the end of her life that it really wasn't about Jimmy's music for her. She says, I'm not really a fan like my daughter and her husband, and like a lot of these people that would give up a lifetime saving to go somewhere just to meet some of Jimmy Rogers' family and to learn a little more about him, you know. I said I thought he was wonderful, and I am a fan, and I've enjoyed working with him, but I didn't do it because I wanted to. He told me I had to. When talking about the songs she wrote, she was just as casual. It was what I like, you know. I just, that's me, my personal. I did what I thought I'd like. And when he sung them, I liked them, and other people liked them too. So what drove Elsie McWilliams, perhaps the most underappreciated, undersung, unassuming songwriter in country music history, to do what she did? Well, her words are, I never did feel like I wanted to be a perfectionist in anything. I just want to do what I want to do, to have fun and for my own pleasure, mostly. 
Elsie dies in 1985 at the age of 89. She's buried in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Meridian, Mississippi, alongside her sister Carrie and her brother-in-law, Jimmy Rogers. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. Remember to support the work of women in music. I have a couple of suggestions of how to do that in the show notes. Also in the show notes are references for this episode, as well as a playlist of songs featured here. If you like the work I'm doing, consider supporting me. I research, write, and produce this all myself, and that takes a significant amount of time. I am working on a second season, and I could really use your help in making that happen. Artists, I'm always looking for cover songs. If you want to be featured on this podcast, submit a cover of one of the artists I talk about, and I'll make you a part of the show. Details on how to do this are in the show notes as well. Next episode, Cleoma Bro Falcone.